Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the PR Week, your weekly podcast for everything going on in the world's PR and communications. I'm your guest host, Frank Washcook, and I'm thrilled to be joined by a terrific guest and a terrific co-host this week. So first, our guest, um, it's Jason Teitler, SVP, Global Communications and Brand Lead at Special Olympics. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And we have a lot to talk about from what you do with the organization and it's an Olympic year and the latest on Naomi Osaka. But to help us out with all of that, we have Sabrina Sanchez, our terrific reporter and also a reporter on our sister magazine campaign. Sabrina, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Frank. Thanks for having me. Is it your first time on the podcast? No, I think this is my third, actually. Uh your third. Okay. So uh, good to know you're a veteran at this already. So Jason, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about what you do at Special Olympics. What does your job include and what do you focus on? Well, I'm glad you asked because a lot of people feel that uh, Special Olympics, based on what they know, is basically an event that happens um, every so often, every two years uh, at our World Games. Uh, but what we do is well beyond um, our world games. Uh, obviously, what we do is sports-based, and everything uh, comes out of what we do with sports as a foundation. But our goal is to bring a more inclusive world to those that have intellectual disabilities, particularly our athletes, through sports, um, as well as health, education, and leadership. And it happens every day of the year across nearly 200 countries and territories. So my role and my team's role is to handle communications uh, around the world, work with our colleagues in all uh, corners of the world to really um, unearth and unlock the stories of our athletes and our volunteers like our coaches and our partners um, as they help to strive for even greater inclusion for those with intellectual disabilities. So I work with uh, the good folks on the media side, um, digital first influencers, uh, working with our channels, both digital and social media. Uh, and um, we've got a team that's really doing a great job for those that desperately need to have a voice and to be heard across the world. So, Jason, this this almost feels like a little bit of a two-parter in that I'd imagine your job ramps up tremendously when it's a, an event year, so to speak, when it's a year when the games are happening. Uh, is that correct or is it is it is that not the case? No, that's definitely the case. And obviously the um, the past year, as well as the first part of this year, has been um, certainly a, a bit interesting, to say the, the least. When uh, you start to factor in the pandemic, you start to factor in social injustice and um, a variety of things that are happening on the um, global political front. So uh, we are gearing up for our World Games in Kazan, Russia, uh, in January of 2022. And we're also gearing up for our World Games in Berlin in 2023. The Winter World Games will be in, in Kazan, Russia, and then the Summer Games will be in Berlin. And usually we don't have World Games back-to-back, -back, but obviously the uh, pandemic had um, a different uh, 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 path for us. Um, but uh, with all those things coming together, we've been very, very busy throughout 2020 and certainly into 2021. So I'm glad you brought this up because so much has happened uh, over the past 15 months. But what what did the pandemic force you to do, not just in terms of planning the games itself, but just 
you know, working with all of the different athletes, and I'm sure a lot of people have a lot of different health concerns about the athletes, um, you know, as well as as well as themselves. And and what did all, uh, what were the first things that you had to do when the pandemic hit, and and how did it work over the next year and a half? Well, we certainly had to be nimble. We had to pivot. We had to rely a lot on technology to um, uh, provide for our athletes. Um, you may or may not know Special Olympics is a movement from people with ID and not a charity for people with ID. Our organization and our brand is driven by those athletes and their leadership. And we want to make sure that their safety, um, their health, their fitness, um, their well-being is paramount. It's the of the utmost importance um, to all of us at Special Olympics. So we do have 6.5 million athletes and unified partners um, around the world. So when the pandemic hit and um, all of our events were sidelined, we had to find other ways to keep our athletes engaged and still provide them with programming that would keep them um, active, fit, uh, making sure they're eating right, making sure their spirits are, are lifted. And we found some very creative ways to do that. One example is a program that we put in place pretty quickly with our partner, WWE, and they are a tremendous partner. WWE has been by our side for quite some time, and that includes the superstars of WWE. And uh, we worked with them to create a program called School of Strength. And School of Strength is basically a digital uh, program that our athletes can participate in on their own time to walk them through some uh, training exercises, um, ways to stay fit, ways to consider uh, how to eat nutritiously. And um, it's basically that digital coach. And that's just one example of how we were able to uh, help our athletes during this very tough time. And some of them still are in the midst of that very tough time. Yeah. And you mentioned, of course, there's social justice was was important, but it became so much more important last year. And so did, you know, DEI initiatives. Uh, walk us through what, what your organization was doing on those fronts, too. Well, it's um, it's sad to say that we fight that every day and we've been fighting that for well over 52 years. So we're, we're very familiar with um, fighting for inclusion, uh, fighting for diversity. Uh, those with intellectual disabilities are often the um, last um, uh, group being considered in society. So we certainly um, were able to um, deal with uh, situations that were thrown uh, to a variety of uh, different countries around the world, world when it came to social justice. And we certainly made sure that we led with our athlete voices because, again, we are an athlete-led organization and we practice what we preach. Um, we ask uh, organizations all the time to um, not only talk the talk about inclusion and diversity, but walk the walk. In other words, a policy is not enough. Um, that they actually need to implement different processes and different approaches and certainly uh, education. Uh, so we continued with that. And um, during those uh, those times where we really had needed to have a voice, we continued with our march for inclusion for those with intellectual disabilities um, because they have uh, consistently been uh, considered on the back burner. And we all know that uh, everybody deserves uh, an equal um, shot at an opportunity from a leadership perspective, a healthcare perspective, education perspective. So we were very familiar with it. And um, we use it as an opportunity to further advance um, the movement and our voice. And we used athletes' um, voices to be the ones who uh, directly worked with media, worked with influencers, and worked with the general public about our mission. 
Mm-hmm. And just in terms of the day-to-day, the non-big event, it, it, from the outside, it looks like a lot of your marketing, uh, you mentioned the WWE, but it, it is done in partnership with other organizations, with celebrities, with with athletes who are really well-known. Uh, is, is that the case? And how do you how do you pick the right people to partner with? So uh, great question. And there are a variety of different levels to that question. Um, so I'll, I'll try to start with... Um, Uh, our basic approach to media relations and visibility. I mean, certainly we are an organization that has a a pretty detailed network of individuals that are out there working with a variety of different stakeholders directly um, and also the conduits like media and influencers to convey that information. But we also are um, very calculated when we bring others into our fold. And what I mean by that is uh, the partners that we work with, um, like WWE and our broadcasting partner, ESPN, we also do a lot of work with the CDC. Uh, we've been working with the CDC for 20 years, which certainly has helped us with our um, healthcare initiative, which is incredibly strong and uh, uh, f- focuses on issues and opportunities around the world. And then we very much look for those celebrities that um, are very into supporting and giving back and walking that walk as opposed to, again, talking that talk. So we very much hand select those um, individuals that uh, we bring into the movement. And we look for a blend of celebrities um, that are willing to roll up their sleeves that have somebody with an intellectual disability in their um, their network and those that do not have somebody with an intellectual disability in their network. And both are equally important because we do feel that one of the biggest opportunities we have is to demonstrate the value of inclusion for those with intellectual disabilities amongst those folks that don't believe it impacts them because they don't have somebody in their circle of family and friends. But those with ID, we all know are in our communities. They're in um, uh, the businesses that we work with, they're, they're everywhere and they're human beings like you and I, and they should be given the same treatment, the same opportunities and the same health and education provisions that we all um, receive. So our celebrities very much help us carry that message out and amplify that to um, very important heights and oftentimes are on the front lines working with the good folks on the media front, like uh, like the two of you. All right. Um Take us a little bit behind the scenes with um, what you do in terms of communications and marketing for the games themselves, you know, whether it's the ones coming up in Berlin or in Russia. Um, What goes into it feels like such a big lift. What goes into all of that? Oh, man, that's a whole day's conversation. But uh, um, it starts well before the the world games or even regional games like our upcoming uh, USA games that are taking place in Orlando in 2022. But um, it does start well before the games themselves. Um, there's a lot of uh, logistical things that we need to consider, such as the media that um, may be visiting us in the, the host country, making sure that not only um, simple things like accommodations are are addressed, but also all the provisions that will help um, media and influencers that are invited in to cover the games uh, are in place so that they can um, cover uh, all the great stories uh, about our athletes, about what they've um, been able to achieve, uh, some of the challenges that they've had, and our coaches, you know, our volunteers across the board, our partner stories, making sure those provisions are in place. Um, but we also do a very good job of focusing on our world games, whether it be the upcoming ones in uh, Kazan or Berlin, um, in 
in starting to market and um, communicate what we'll be doing in those countries uh, with athletes from around the world about a year before the games actually hit. So in the case of Kazan, we had a whole campaign that started in January uh, to celebrate the the games um, and the year leading up to the games. And then as it progresses, as we get closer to the games, um, there are other initiatives that are put in place so that we keep that drumbeat going and people are continuing to keep inclusion for those with intellectual disabilities top of mind using our milestone events like the World Games as a reason to have a conversation. And that includes everything as simple as revealing the logo to talking about various ambassadors that'll be supporting the World Games on site and from a distance, from a celebrity standpoint, um, sharing a lot of really interesting athlete stories about their journeys towards uh, World Games. And frankly, since we've been doing this for quite some time, we also spend a lot of attention um, to the legacy of the whole World Games franchise. So different markets have different stories and different legacies. And then overall, it tells a story uh, about our World Games legacy in totality. So the games that we had some time ago in Abu Dhabi, um, that has a tremendous legacy in the education um, uh, frontier. So based on that, we were able to expand um, what was U.S.-based at the time in the form of Unified Champion Schools um, to uh, international markets. And what that means is a school that has those with and without intellectual disabilities learning together in the U.S. It, they are public schools for the most part. And uh, we were able to expand that based on what the Abu Dhabi Games was able to uh, achieve with the support of the um, uh, the folks in, uh, in the UAE and the Crown Prince. And um, that is going very, very well in expanding our education initiatives. That's fascinating stuff. Um, do you get any kind of a lift? And it's I'm, I'm calling it an unintentional Olympic year, but it, it's still an Olympic year. Um, and, and it's looking like the games in Tokyo are going to go on. Do you get any kind of lift like that? Or is there any kind of... Um, I, I, does it does it help you tell your story when when the the Olympic Games are also happening? Not necessarily. Um, in some cases, it's actually confusing to um, a variety of different audiences because we are not connected to the IOC nor are we a part of the IPC. Um, rather, we are an independent movement, um, you know, all over the world. And a lot of people, I totally understand this, um, do have uh, a sense that we are connected. Um, or are a part of the the Olympic movement. And um, while we certainly do admire what the, the IOC and the IPC have done, we, we are not a part of that uh, organization. Um, where it does uh, lend some, some great um, advantages is when we have those um, celebrity ambassadors that are Olympic greats, uh, folks like Michael Phelps, uh, Apollo Ono, Michelle Kwan, and um, Bart Connor, Nadia Komenich, um, they certainly do get a bit more attention to talk about um, inclusion, what they're doing with Special Olympics when the Olympics um, becomes a part of the discussion, you know, every so often as the Olympics do happen. But we are not connected to them. So sometimes we do have to demystify who we are, uh, what we represent and how we're structured. One other campaign I want to ask you about is, is to be clear, your Special Olympics and not the Special Olympics. And there's, there's a distinction I know that, that you guys make. And, and I know you did a campaign about that. Tell us a little bit more about that and why, why you make that distinction and drop the the, so to speak. To me, this is one of the most important points that we really want to emphasize with um, a whole variety of audiences. 
the Special Olympics would suggest that we're only an event that takes place every two years or every so often, uh, periodically, uh, much like our, our games do. While we do have very substantial events that happen periodically, as I've mentioned, um, we do a, quite a bit of work on the grassroots level all over the globe every day of the year. And uh, it's really based on the on four specific initiatives, sports being at that foundation, um, like I mentioned, um, certainly inclusive health, uh, unified champion schools for education and leadership. And uh, we work with a lot of great partners like Bank of America, Microsoft, Toyota, Coca-Cola is a founding partner, um, Gallagher, uh, We've got the Galasano Foundation, I already mentioned, WWE and ESPN, and they are all a part of our programming that happens every day of the year. And if we call ourselves the Special Olympics, we're really putting ourselves in a box, and we don't want to put ourselves in a box. So we could say the Special Olympics movement because movement suggests that we're doing something more than just every so often, but um, we do not call ourselves the Special Olympics because that would, again, put us into a compartment that um, we feel is uh, not really true to our mission and the work that we do every minute of every day. Fair point. Um, so you you moved over to this role and you moved over to the client side when you took this role and you were you were at BCW and you were at other agencies before that. Uh, what do you was there anything you almost wish you knew moving to the client side uh, before you did it or anything that, that came as a surprise when you started working at Special Olympics? Uh, and, and, you know, you're, you're sort of the boss of the agencies then. So, um, what, what was that like and what do you, what was your big learning? Well, my big learning is that, um, certainly there are a lot of uh, things that I could, uh, very much, uh, be more familiar with being on the client side in particular and working with the athletes and those with intellectual disabilities to have a perspective that I just didn't have when I was on the agency side and representing Special Olympics. Um, that is one of the reasons I, I felt very comfortable in, in moving from agency to client side is because, um, it was with Special Olympics. I have, I had already been working with Special Olympics as the account lead at BCW for many, many years. Um, but what I didn't know as much as I do right now uh, are all of the tremendous um, things that our athletes can teach the world. And uh, I'll give you an example. You might have heard of a gentleman named Chris Nikich. Um, he became the first person ever with Down syndrome to complete an Ironman. He's a Special Olympics athlete from Florida. He is going to be competing in another Ironman, um, the big one uh, in Hawaii. Um, but his perseverance, um, the the struggles and opportunities that he um, faced um, throughout his uh, his march towards becoming a uh, a first and certainly an Ironman champion, uh, all of that um, exposure I just didn't have on the agency side, and I have a greater appreciation for what those with intellectual disabilities deal with every day. Um, that uh, I'm so grateful I have right now. Plus, I now have the opportunity to truly give back. Uh, I know a lot of us wish we we can and uh, certainly say that it's it's an ambition they have. Um, I'm proud to say that I was able to achieve that with my friends at Special Olympics, now part of my family. Terrific stuff. Want to wish you luck with the games, but also the terrific work you're doing. Really important stuff. So thanks for coming on. And I'm going to move to the big 
marketing and communication stories of the week now. And it just turns out that the biggest one uh, has a, a sports angle and as a sports story. And so, Sabrina, tell us a little bit about uh, the situation with um, with the tennis star Naomi Osaka. Uh, what happened there? What she did? and what the implications might be for uh, media relations for athletes. Yeah, so pro tennis player Naomi Osaka announced that she has withdrawn from the French Open tournament to focus on her mental health. Now, this is significant because prior to the announcement, Osaka refused to speak to the press due to her mental health, which is a requirement according to the tournament's rules. And so she was fined $15,000. And since then, companies like Nike, MasterCard, and Sweetgreen, which have partnerships with her, as well as other athletes, have posted statements of solidarity. Um, so that's ignited the dialogue about mental health in sports and also journalism and the pressure that journalists are under to get a story. And it's, it's an interesting crisis management case study because PR pros seem to agree that this can have lasting ramifications on other tournament organizations if athletes begin to deny press, um, which could, in, you know, it could implicate sponsorships and conversely if they do not acknowledge mental health boundaries as well jason what are, what are your thoughts on this and and do you think it's going to have any impact on the post-game interviews or the media relations activities that athletes do going forward well i really do think it should be addressed i could see the perspective from both sides um and i could certainly appreciate um where both parties are coming from but i do think the the modern presser um should be evaluated and uh potentially re-engineered because what we're looking at now is an environment where athletes um if they do have a point to make uh, directly to fans can do so a variety of ways and um, we also know that the, the presser itself has certainly changed from uh, years and years ago where it was very much a limited amount of press that are invited into a particular environment. And the questions were a little less um, uh, on the fringe as they are right now. Some of the questions that are thrown out there, I, I, I would be uncomfortable as well. But um, I do believe because of social media, I do believe because of different approaches to media, like with outlets um, such as uh, the Players' Tribune, there is there are other ways for athletes to interact with fans and to talk about their performance. Um, I think everyone, well, not everyone, but a certain amount of people on both sides need to get in a room and talk about how to potentially contemporize um, the uh, the presser and press engagement so that there are different opportunities for different personalities. And of course, when we start talking about mental health, that's a whole different ballgame. And that needs to very seriously be considered and uh, should very much be a part of the equation, as well as other um, you know, uh, situations that people may be in uh, when dealing with media. We are talking uh, largely about um, a uh, individual who's under a lot of pressure to not only prepare, but to perform. And sometimes they're out in uh, the blazing heat for, for many, many hours performing. And uh, to then shove a mic in someone's face um, with a, another 100, 200 people in, in the, the audience is uh, certainly a daunting um, um, ask. So I do think it's uh, something that we could explore as a an industry. And I think there are uh, a variety of different solutions to fit different types of personalities. For sure. Um, something that came up in a story that we did about this this week was that uh, there is a difference 
just in terms of the press conferences and the tone and the questions that are asked between an individual sport and a team sport? Yes, I do think it's um, it's a big difference because when you're talking about an individual sport, obviously it's the individual that has to be under the, the microscope. When it's a team sport, if somebody for whatever reason cannot participate or does not want to participate in a um, – a press conference, then there are many other opportunities to throw a different personality in front of uh, the media for certain questions. Uh, if you're a manager, that's a different story because you're the manager and that's what the demand is. But let's say we're talking about a, a soccer team or a professional football or baseball team. There are a variety of other um, stars and superstars that could perhaps uh, fill that role. But when you're talking about an individual sport, it's that individual that's under the microscope. And um, I think there's a lot, there are a lot of things that people don't know about an individual, nor should they know. Um, and some things that do surface, like in this case with uh, mental health, uh, that need to be factored in. So I think there are very much uh, differences between team sports and individual sports. And where it blends together is certainly with Olympic competition or the Davis Cup or um, others where you do have individuals that are competing, um, you know, representing a country or or a particular uh, team. Yeah. Yeah. I have to tell you, when I first read a few of the initial stories about how she got fined and that she was declining to to talk to the press, I, I had one point of view on it. And then I had a totally different point of view when I read the statement that she made about the reasons that, that she was making this decision and why she was taking a step back. And, and it's one of those occasions where you read a statement and you, you know this person wrote this th- themselves because, it, you know, she was so heartfelt and thorough and, and, and I think genuine. And I think it was important, too, that she, she clarified that she actually does – like a lot of the reporters that she talks to and, and, and she feels that they've been respectful towards her and, and there seems to be a good relationship there. Uh, it, it's just that she needed to step back for the reasons that she cited. And when she explained that so well, I had a totally different perspective on the story than I might have before. And, and I, I think it was really important the way she expressed herself like that because it was so genuine and authentic and, and, and thorough and, you know, it was really well done. So, um, okay, moving on to the next topic. Sabrina, we at PR Week just started our inaugural Pride in PR list. Tell us a little bit about that uh, and a few of the folks that we've honored this week. PR Week launched its inaugural Pride in PR list, as you mentioned, um, and it launched on June 1st, and it recognizes PR professionals that identify as LGBTQ. And uh, PR Week is highlighting one honoree per day through the end of the month, and content includes a Q&A with each honoree about a variety of topics, including representation in the industry, challenges for LGBTQ PR pros, and other topics as well. So that's on the PR Week website. And um, today's honoree is Kiwan Anderson. Um, And that's just one example of some of the PR pros that is highlighted, and, and there will be quite a number of them. So um, that'll be rolling out throughout the month, and you can check that on the PR Week website. Yeah, stay tuned for, for more uh, on that as the month continues. Uh, we want to single out Kathy Renna, too, who was one of the, the first folks that we honored on this list because uh, Kathy is just a real trailblazer, um, and she has been working on LGBT communications, crisis communications, you know, all of these things for, for decades. Uh, and she's terrific. And she's been a guest on the podcast. Um, 
And, you know, we, we loved having her on and, and she has such a great point of view and happy to honor her with one of the first spots on the list uh, this week. So, Sabrina, the question for you here, and, and this is just about marketing during June and marketing during Pride. What, what should brands do? What shouldn't they do? How do they not get accused of, of rainbow washing or pride washing? Yeah, that's a really interesting topic because, as you mentioned, in past years, especially Gen Z has accused brands of rainbow washing everything and being performative about their allyship. So this year, Pride events are returning in a limited capacity, and whether events will be virtual or in-person vary on a state-by-state basis. But nonetheless, there are opportunities for brands to show up in different ways. Um, But as a result of what I previously mentioned, the consensus is, based on a Campaign U.S. poll, that brands need to do more to support LGBTQ advocacy organizations, including putting their dollars towards those orgs. Um, So based on comments on Twitter, the public is not really responding well to companies that put out rainbow merch without advocacy. And additionally, consumers want to see more LGBTQ support year round as opposed to just one month out of the year. So those are just some of the things that I'm seeing online and Um, from the people that I've spoken to, you know, just more consistency with advocacy and also putting their money where their mouth is. Absolutely. Some good advice there. I wanted you to take us inside another story that you did this week, and that's about uh, Clubhouse's Creator First program. Tell us what that that is about. Yeah, so Clubhouse launched its Creator First pilot program back in March, uh, and it partnered with 50 influencers to create programming native to the platform. Uh, So PR Week has kept in touch with Clubhouse about the program and a story that I just published inside Clubhouse's Creator First program details their strategy for developing content and connecting brands to influencers. And it's a really interesting story because in recent weeks, people have speculated that Clubhouse's moment is over uh, because people are spending more time outside. And, you know, it's sort of being reflected in the decline in downloads for the app, despite it launching on uh, Android recently. Um, so that's on the website. And, you know, it just sort of walks through how they're thinking about this uh, this new program. And, um, you know, they seem to be diving in despite, you know, the decline in ratings. So that's the story. Sabrina, what do you think? Clubhouse here to stay or is it a flash in the pan? Uh, I'm not really sure. You know, I have to say, I think I think the moment has passed. That's just my personal opinion. Um, but I, I just think that people are excited for travel. They're excited to get back out and have more in-person connection. Um, and so I don't really see people spending that much time on their devices anymore. I mean, I think everyone is fatigued at this point. Uh, so I think we're all kind of past the phone and the video calls. Yes, I can tell you, I am looking forward to travel and getting back at myself. Jason, let me get your point of view on something here. And, and Special Olympic athletes, um, how do how do you do... Do you work in conjunction with them on their social media activities? Do you do you lend them any support? Um, how, how do you handle that? Because I'm I'm guessing like any other athlete that a lot of them are very active on social media and and have their own points of view and and how do you do that? Well, certainly their their POVs are their own. Um, we do encourage them to uh, to be vocal in the fight for inclusion for those with intellectual disabilities around the world. Um, we do not uh, provide any sort of um, uh, mandates on social media f- with our athletes. Um, oftentimes, we're in a position where they need some assistance, and we're more than happy to provide our athletes with guidance, with uh, tools, with um, uh, some ways to interact with different types of um, 
uh, channels, um, audiences through those channels. Uh, some of our athletes are very, very active on social media, and that includes um, uh, some that have their own podcasts and some that are very active um, on LinkedIn, in addition to some of the channels that you would expect. Um, and we're very, very happy that our athletes are choosing to uh, to lead um, both uh, online and offline, and we encourage uh, them to share our messages um, far and wide. Uh, and we are very much learning from them all the time. And we do have some athletes that have become celebrities in their own right, uh, whether that be on TikTok or through Twitch or other channels. And uh, we're very, very happy to, to see that social media has allowed them and uh, enabled them to carry the mission even further. And a lot of those stories you can find on specialolympics.org. And of course, um, we also cover it through our channel. So you could check that out at, at Special Olympics um, across all platforms. All right. Terrific stuff. Jason, thanks for coming on today. Really appreciate your time um, and all the great work you're doing out there. Sabrina, thanks so much for uh, guest co-hosting this week. And this has been another edition of the PR Week. Uh, we will be back next week with our regular host, Steve Barrett, and the host chair. Uh, but until then, signing off, um, and thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit prweek.com.